Hi, it's Ella Whelan here, one third of the Spike podcast. Spiked is free and we want to keep it that way. So think about giving us a donation after you listen to today's show. Go to spiked-online.com and click the donate button. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up today, we'll be joined by Labour Leaves Brendan Chilton to discuss the party's Brexit betrayal. And we'll also be talking about Islamophobia in the media and Afro Future Fest. Jeremy Corbyn has announced that Labour would support remaining in the European Union in another referendum. We will take no deal off the table. Is Labour now a definitively pro-Remain party? It has taken a pretty big step in that direction. Jeremy Corbyn has gradually been forced to backtrack over Brexit. What's important is what the views of voters are. Labour will lose votes. This week, the Labour Party finally clarified its position on Brexit. Jeremy Corbyn called on the next Tory leader to hold a second referendum and said the party would campaign for Remain. Labour would also oppose any deal done by the Conservatives, as well as a no-deal Brexit. The Labour leader had been under intense pressure to back Remain from both the party's Remain-leaning members, but also in recent weeks from even previously Eurosceptic allies like Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Brendan Chilton of Labour Leave is joining us down the line. Brendan, what was your reaction to the announcement this week? Well, I think moving down this, this, this policy route is actually going to cost Labour the next general election. Taking aside the, the right and wrong uh, of it, just look at the electoral arithmetic of Labour's top uh, 25 most marginal seats. Around 60% of them voted solidly for leave. And of the top 25 seats that Labour needs to win to form the next government, around 70% voted leave. And in those marginal seats that Labour holds and in the ones we need to win, uh, the type of voters that we need to get on our side will lead voters. In the 2016 uh, referendum, just under 4 million Labour voters supported leave. And then of our 2017 vote, if you add on all those voters that came back from UTIP and the Conservative leave voters that supported Labour, estimates show that it's up to 5 million people voted leave who then subsequently voted Labour. So the electoral arithmetic uh, just says this policy is wrong. Now, the rights and wrongs of this, we promised in our manifesto in 2017 explicitly to the British people, in clear writing it said, we accept the outcome of the referendum, we're leaving the European Union, and the freedom of movement will end. And then two years later, we turn around and go, oh, well, that whole respecting the referendum thing, yeah, let's show that. We now want to campaign to remain. I think this is going to cost Labour dearly. It will satisfy our metropolitan Remain membership, but we will not win the country. Tom, do you want to add something to that? No, I think it was, re- even though we knew that this announcement was um, a long time coming, I think it's really fascinating and really stark when you kind of take a little step back and kind of look at the broader picture here. Because for a very long time in British politics, you know, the Labour Party was the primary Eurosceptic force. It certainly mm. was at around the time of the 1975 referendum. Um, and when people talk about Labour Euroscepticism, I think there's a tendency to just associate it with the kind of, you know, the Benite faction where Jeremy Corbyn um, hails from. But, you know, it really, there was a wide diversity of Eurosceptic opinion in the party anyway. You know, Clem Attlee and um, Nye Bevan even had made um, speeches criticising the European communities um, and warning against 
joining it there's a very very long history of this and i kind of think if you if you think back to you know the 1970s to today the more and more that the labor party seem to have embraced um the european union up to the point now where not only are they siding with it but are actually siding with crushing a democratic vote to leave it which i think mm. is a far more um significant betrayal you kind of it is in some respects a kind of um story of how labor became more and more detached from democracy and more and more detached from ordinary working class people you know famously when Jacques Delors then president of the European Commission gave this speech at the um trade union congress in 1988 really the moment which is held up as the point at which the labor movement or at least a large section of it was won over to the cause of um the European Union um it was very much presented as kind of in the midst of the kind of clobbering that the left had received under under Thatcher that this was a kind of haven this was a way to claw back some level of social protections mm. to install some sort of some sort of um levels of of more um social democratic policy but by kind of other means um and i think that in many respects this kind of story of labor's drift away from euroscepticism its drift away from its ordinary voters is a kind of tale of it losing faith in democracy itself that being said i think this is a this is a far more stark moment purely because as we said this isn't necessarily um about backing the european union this is about saying that the biggest democratic vote in this history of any topic regardless mm. um needs to be crushed and i think that really just deals a huge blow to the idea that the labor party is there to represent ordinary people and i think this is something which it will really struggle to recover from not only electorally as brendan has very well outlined but also kind of morally you know if this is supposed to be a democratic socialist party how can that affect how can that rest off the back of a huge betrayal like this yeah uh, ella I'm sort of torn between, on the one hand, being quite frustrated with the shock that everyone seems to be displaying about this new development in the Labour Party. I mean, we, we've known that this is the case for years, three years. Um, on the other hand, I think that it is a very interesting and potentially uh, exciting moment because what the Labour Party has done is outlined itself as being very clearly on a certain side um, against Brexit and against the workers. I mean, it's... 101 years after Clause 4 was adopted. Mm. And here we have, in very stark terms, um, a Labour Party defining itself, as Brandon said, along the lines of uh, the metropolitan elite's desire for a kind of managerial politics and specifically against uh, working class desires for democratic change. Uh, and, you know, Labour Party MPs and activists will say, no, 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 you know, don't characterise Brexit as just being about the working class. It's not that. And they'll point to this statistic and how many Tories in the South voted and blah, blah, blah. But undeniably, the discussion around Brexit and the way it's been characterised has turned into a kind of an us and them debate yeah. um, and a, a masses and an elite debate and all those kind of binaries. And the Labour Party has picked its side. The reason why I say it's exciting is because... There is now, for the first time, I think quite a long time, a genuine space for an actual left-wing populism to come to the fore because the Labour Party has completely exited that uh, area. It does, it cannot say that it's for the many, not the few, any longer because you could just point to Brexit to prove that wrong. And I think that a, you know a party shouldn't. Uh, play to its members in the way that the Labour Party is doing. I mean, Labour Party members at the moment are incredibly flitty I mean, and fickle. And uh, it, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn has had to really bow down to them. Uh, but a party should stand up for something, should have a principle, and then should win people over to that. And I think that there's an exciting moment for a, some kind of a different left party to actually do that and take up that space. Brendan, you, you outlined re really well, um, you know, Labour's prospects at the 
next general election. But what do you think about, you know, the long term of, of the party? And especially for, you know, Eurosceptics like yourself, I mean, what what does this decision mean in those terms, do you think? Well, in the in the immediate um, future to the medium term, I don't think Labour is going to form a government. We've just simply now have alienated too many people on the leave side. And indeed, uh, for those people that are delighted with this position, it's been a very long time coming. And I think a lot of Remain supporters don't necessarily believe the Labour Party because um, mm. they look at this as a sort of political calculation. No oh dear, we've lost a few people to the Lib Dems in Camden. Therefore, we need to become a Remain party. It's not necessarily because the party believes it, according to those Remainers. In the long term, however, I mean, I've, I've read articles for years about Labour's drift from its working class. And I, I started reading them when Blair was leader, uh, then Brown, then Miliband, and now Corbyn. But I do actually finally think we are in a position where we can no longer explicitly say the Labour Party is the party of the working class. Uh, more working class people, uh, in the, according to the opinion polls, are now supporting the Tory party. Mm. Some of the lowest in the socioeconomic groups are now supporting the Tory party and the Brexit party. Labour is now the party of the middle class. Now, in terms of the space that this leaves in British politics, certainly there is a gap now because, again, the, if you like, the right-wing Tory Brexiteers uh, that are supporting Brexit are doing it because they wish to pursue some sort of neoliberal Thatcherite route after Britain, you know, children up chimneys, you know, deregulate everything from, throw the baby out from the womb of birth and say good luck. Um, we're not quite at that stage. The, the working classes, if you like, are not at that stage. They are a much more nativist vote in some respects. Protectionists, they want the state to be involved in the running of the economy and supporting people in their lives. They're very patriotic as well. And so the, the leadership of the right are not necessarily in tune with those at the bottom. The question is, do we have a voice or a structure that can represent that mass at the top in any future election. And clearly that's that's kind of one of the battles that's going to come out in in future. I mean, you used a very colourful phrase, Brendan, in your in your article that um, you know, the the red flag <laughs> has been <laughs> has been taken down the pole and, and replaced with the, the EU flag. I mean, is it that serious, do you think? Well, I mean I think it was a sort of visual representation of, of what's happening. But you know, the Labour Party has now sided, if you like, in capital with finance, with corporatism, with the European Union. Uh, money will rule forevermore under Labour's position uh, at the moment. Which again is curious given we've got the most left wing leader that we've ever had. Yeah. I think a lot of working class people, the old working class that have been loyal to Labour from day one, not necessarily left wing, a lot of them quite right wing, but they've been loyal to the Labour Party, will be looking at this and thinking, where is our dear old decent patriotic Labour Party gone? Like you said very early on, you know, Nye Bevan, one of the greatest uh, Labour figures in that first Labour government. Um, Fiercely patriotic, deeply Eurosceptic, believe strongly in enhancing the needs and conditions of uh, the working men and women of this country. You don't hear Labour talking in that language anymore. You don't really hear any party talking in that language. Yet there's a huge craving in the country for that kind of politics, I believe. And so, whilst, yes, it was, it was a colourful uh, a colourful uh, description of where I think we are at the moment, I think actually it reflects quite well that void now between Labour and the people. The people are looking one way and Labour's looking another. 
You're listening to the Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. The Muslim Council of Britain has launched a campaign calling for fairer media coverage of Muslims. This week, it produced a study analysing over 10,000 articles and TV clips from the last three months. It claims that 59% of print articles and 43% of broadcast clips link Muslims with bad behaviour. So, does the British media have a problem with anti-Muslim bias? Tom, you've looked into this this week. Can you tell us a bit more about these claims? Yeah, so going into this report, you kind of expect to see some absolute horror stories. You know, we've we've all seen um, instances in which you've had pretty dangerous cases of misinformation or in some cases things that might look to all intents and purposes like anti-Muslim bias in the press, you know, sensationalism, spinning stories beyond what they're actually true. There was a famous case in 2015 of an article by Katie Hopkins in the Mail Online falsely claiming that two men from Walthamstow um, were ejected from a flight because they were effectively terrorists. That was entirely untrue and that later had to be corrected. But reading through this report, those cases are conspicuous by their absence effectively i mean there's a there's a few kind of cases of quite grating dodgy sensationalism shall we say you know Mm. a headline which seems to suggest there's a problem of muslim only pools in um sydney but that turns out not really to be the case a story about a woman who converts to islam to run away with her toy boy and there's a bit of the headline that says brainwashed actually quoting her husband but you know sends a bit of an icky message Mm. shall we say but the vast majority of it is stuff which are kind of quite minor errors to be completely honest with you and then stuff that is completely ridiculous joanna lumley comes into um the frame at one point because (laughs) she had a um, travel documentary on itv she was in kyrgyzstan and she said they had a less strict islamic field than other countries she'd visited apparently that was bad because it associated um islam with being strict um (laughs) there was another case i think one of the most striking ones was at the back of the report there's a few kind of supportive essays by academics who contributed to the to the methodology into the report there's one which is devoted to an article in the daily express all about a random Ramadan advent calendar in Morrison's. Um, the academic concedes that this article is not biased. In fact, could be taken as an example of completely fair reporting. But because it's in the Express, mm. it contributes to um, a narrative of you know Islamic cultural threat, etc. And what I think was really quite worrying about this report is that you're seeing really a not just a kind of conflation of anti-Muslim bigotry with Islamophobia, this far more nebulous concept, this idea that even criticising Islamic practices in some way dodgy. We're not even just seeing that. We're also seeing a lot of cases of incredibly marginal stuff being lumped in to try and inflate this statistic. And whilst I think we should all be concerned about um, accuracy, fair reporting, and challenging any thing that we think has stepped over the line in any kind of way, reading this report, and I can only go on the examples that are quoted in it, it's hard to find many shocking examples of it, to be honest. My immediate reaction was that most news is negative, especially in, in national newspapers. And, you know, there's the famous mantra in, in newspapers that if it bleeds, it leads. So I'd be surprised to hear if there's any group in society that comes out looking positive if you if you totted up all the articles about them. And it's interesting in the, in the BBC write-up of, of, of the study, I, I don't know the methodology. That's that One of the dodgy things is that they haven't told us how they've, exactly how they've worked out, you know, what is a negative story, what is a positive story. But 
it's it's quite clear that it, regional newspapers were less negative than um, national newspapers, but that's surely because you know they cover local events, they'll cover charity runs, they'll cover the church faced and most likely a mosque fundraiser. You know those are the domain of local news and not the domain of of national news. So the attempt to you know construct this narrative that there is this overwhelming kind of negativity towards Muslims in the British media seems seems a bit off to me. And and in fact, the suggestion that, you know, maybe we should all be more positive in our reporting is, is actually very authoritarian. Yeah, well, that's the thing that struck me. I thought, right, so you're going to set out, presumably the aim of a report like this is to set out a different set of regulations or a different framework for which the media would work, mm. which means you have to be nice to Muslims mm. and you can't criticise. I mean, because the examples that are listed in it is uh, in the report are, as Tom says, there's very few outright kind of Islamophobic, bigoted things in there. Actually, a lot of it is relatively subjective. Um, so what you're saying, you have to act a certain way and write a certain way about a certain group. That doesn't sound like press freedom. Yeah. And anyway, it's the idea that the media, like you said, the kind of the central blob of the media is somehow massively Islamophobic is missing crucial examples where it's proven not to be true. So the outrage about Boris Johnson's letterbox yeah. mm. comment, for example, if that's a litmus test of where we're at in relationship to uh, Islam, I mean, it shows that actually we're overprotective of it yeah. to the point of ridiculousness where people can't take a joke. And one of the things in your article, Tom, that I found fascinating as an example from the report was the bodyguard. Yeah. Uh, which, if anyone's watched it, it was a character uh, was wearing a burqa and she was characterised as being sort of put upon, demonised, subservient. I mean, <laughs> she had a suicide vest strapped to her and was in serious distress. And this was seen as, uh, as you know, producing kind of negative character of women in burqas and Muslim women. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, if you can't make certain quite uncontroversial statements about terrorists, for example, yeah. and make criticism of a certain, you know, aspect of Islam, like the burqa, then we're not living in a free society that can, we're back mm. in blasphemy laws where you can't criticise religion. And it's, it's ridiculous as well, because it's not as if the bodyguard was going around, you know, suggesting that all Muslims were like this or that yeah. all Muslims were ultra-religious to, towards extremism, you know, likely to strap on a bomb vest and go on a train. I mean, it's just completely unfounded. And I think one of the more concerning things about the report as well is that um, the points at which, in particular, it moves out of the realm of saying this description of what someone did is actually incorrect. It implies that Islam had something to do with their actions when it actually didn't. And when it's actually into the realm of how you can report on and discuss the question of um, Islam and Islamism itself. So one example um, that is in there is um, it criticises various news outlets, including the BBC and The Guardian, for running with a picture of Khalid Massoud, the Westminster Bridge attacker, um, in the wake of that attack, of him in Mecca. Um, the report says this will subconsciously link um, Islamic practice to extremism. Mm. And you think the fact that he thought he was doing God's work when he committed that atrocity is not irrelevant no. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, especially in the midst of the fact that there are a lot of 
people over the last couple of years who have tried to commit atrocities in this country thinking they were doing so in God's name. So the only upshot of this report, as far as I can see, is going to be that it's trying to encourage a kind of nervousness about discussing these things because it's politically inconvenient to discuss these things. I think the other thing that's quite worrying about it um, is the fact that this kind of concern about criticising Islamic practice is not just bad for, you know, Boris Johnson wanting to sound off about the burqa. It's also very bad for ex-Muslims and secular Muslims who want to be able to talk about this issue. I think... um, if there's if we're operating in a climate in which criticizing Islamic practice is seen as something that's a little bit um, edgy and a little bit concerning, reporters are less likely to seek out those voices. And there's actually one another example in the report which I thought was fascinating was that there was a BBC interview report about a woman in Iran who was part of the anti-hijab protest there. She was one of the girls of Revolution Street. She took off her hijab. Um, she was arrested for she was arrested for this. She was interrogated. She ended up having to flee the country and her husband and her child. This was isolated in the report as a case of one-sided reporting on the hijab <laughs> that's ridiculous yeah. I mean, what they're supposed to do go and get the, a statement from the iranian revolutionary guard i don't really understand how you can you know if you can watch that report very inspiring as it is and think it's a little one-sided isn't it that tells me that something that that's a very strange way to look at this stuff and i think the upshot of it will be making it um far more difficult or people at least a bit more nervous about talking to those inconvenient voices shall we say one example of this kind of idea that there is this, you know, double standard in, in the media or, you know, an anti, anti-Muslim bias um, wasn't in this report. But I don't know if people remember around the time of the New Zealand um, massacre. Yeah. And there was this widespread suggestion on the Internet that, um, you know, the media were either downplaying the massacre or basically they published um, childhood photos of, of the killer and described him as, you know, an angelic boy who grew up to be an evil far-right, you know, murderer. And obviously people were saying, oh, there's absolutely no way they would do this about, you know, an, an Islamist terrorist. I mean, in the words of Owen Jones, there's absolutely no chance a newspaper would splash a childhood photo of an Islamist terrorist who murdered 49 Christians in a church as an angelic boy. Now, it turns out that actually the newspaper does do this for, you know, Muslim terrorists as well. It, it did it for Mohammed M. Wazi, you know, famously known as Jihadi John, who joined ISIS, described as polite and that word angelic. One paper described Emwazi as a very caring schoolboy. So even the idea that even when it comes to terrorism, there is this double standard Mm. and, you know, needless anti-Muslim bias is, is a bit of a myth. What underlies all of that is the suggestion that it's not really about the newspapers, it's the suggestion that the readers just mm. soak this stuff up mm. and that we see uh, you know, a description of an, uh, a Muslim as something terrible or bigoted and we just soak that up uncritically and therefore it's a danger to the health of society because if you have a media that's rapidly Islamophobic then you have a public that turns rapidly Islamophobic Phobic. I mean, not only is that insulting to the kind of intellectual capabilities of uh, general public of readers, it also it completely misunderstands the nature of what the media is for and what mm. reporting is for. And yes, tabloids will go into the uh, in depth into the personal lives and into the gossip and all of that backstory of any kind of event or any kind of person that happens. And more often than not, the panic about Islamophobia and representation of 
Muslims or any kind of identity group or religion in the media is really a panic about what happens with the people at home. You know, these this bubbling undercurrent of uh, bigotry that's, you know, within, behind every closed door of every English home, we have to keep that at bay. And the idea that you're going to do that by essentially censoring and controlling a media more is also practically stupid. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Afrofuture Fest, a music festival in Detroit, had planned to charge attendees different prices based on the colour of their skin. Early bird tickets started at $10 for people of colour and $20 for non-people of colour, as they described them. One artist, Tiny Jag, a mixed-race rapper, pulled out of the festival in protest. The festival has since abandoned its pricing structure under public pressure and what it claims are threats from white supremacists. It instead asks non-people of colour to make an additional voluntary donation. Tom, what do you make of this arrangement? Um, I thought it was really quite strange and I think actually speaks to um, the kind of nastiness of identity politics when you really let it play out on that kind of level. First of all, this, a lot of this stuff kind of really doesn't make any sense. You know, For instance, if you're the idea being, at least in the statement that was put out by Afro Future Fest, um, that because economically on the broad strokes, you know, black people in America are going to have less money than white people, therefore they need to have this as a kind of little leg up as a way to make sure that they can access these kinds of festivals and these kinds of experiences, you know, Again, it just shows how identity politics takes so little account of basic things like, you know, class. Like, for instance, mm. if you're a white boy, like from a kind of Marshall Mathers style Detroit trailer park, the idea that you're going to suddenly be have as much money <laughs> <laughs> um, as the rich white people up the block is obviously ridiculous. I think the other thing that it brought out, which was quite concerning as well, was the fact that this kind of identity politics as well, particularly in the US, as we've seen in a couple of examples, how it does have this kind of drift towards an idea of separatism as well yeah. now of course this uh, this event wasn't segregated along racial lines it'd be important to point that out but it was interesting in some of the discussion of it you know for instance there was a piece um comment piece in the independent voices with the headline outraged white tears about afro future festival just proved we need spaces where white people aren't invited at all <laughs> and i think it just kind of shows that if you have such an emphasis on racial difference um based on this idea that given historical experience of oppression people have entirely different outlooks entirely different experiences that it's almost kind of grim to expect them to coexist in certain spaces on mm. a kind of nominally equal basis you do get go down some very dark alleyways we've also seen in the u.s phenomenons of racially segregated dorms being demanded by certain sections of students for instance and it feels like this is where that kind of thing is going i thought it was quite um interesting quite heartening actually to see this response from this um, rapper tiny jag making this point very forcefully it was like you're expecting me to perform as a biracial person at a festival at which if my grandmother showed up she would be charged double what i'm being charged there's just something inherently nasty about that and as ridiculous and kind of out there as this case is i think it just demonstrates the kind of where this sort of politics what the kind of drift of it is you know yeah. it's not necessarily this is being enforced in you know every kind of politically correct space across the US, but it does show what some of its kind of underlying assumptions are and they're not 
pretty. And the the black only dorms um, phenomenon is interesting. I mean, I, th- I think that first started in 2016. California State University set up a black living learning community. And it's interesting because obviously it uses the kind of identitarian language that we've become used to. So it's there to provide a, a, a safe space. And, you know, of course, it's not literally segregated and there's absolutely no suggestion that racial boundaries were enforced like they would have been in the in the bad old days but it is you know certainly noteworthy that the politically correct understanding of race actually demands similar kinds of solutions to the bigoted past view of of race and you know i'd say it's almost if the problem is this whole idea of racial difference that we should be challenging head on yeah well and also the solutions are just lame i mean the suggestion that charging 10 quid extra on a festival would solve an issue of racial discrimination is Mm. just pathetic i mean to uh, wonder what activists in years gone by would have thought of that i mean that independent voices article is brilliant because it so captures the uh the outrage around never mind the white tears outrage i mean the outrage around um white people stop crying (laughs) (laughs) wanting to pay the same amount of money for a festival and she says white people have put communities of color through a veritable hell for centuries so they can damn well pay 20 extra dollars to attend a festival that they arguably don't have any business attending in the first place (laughs) and it's i mean it's ridiculous but that's the that's where politics around racial discrimination are at at the moment and we've seen that with roads must fall we've seen that with all kinds of campaigns that people today have to pay for the wrongs of the past so Mm. the centuries of hell yes there have been decades and centuries of hell for black people but the suggestion that that will be solved with a festival in 2019 speaks to the kind of uh, the shallow nature of uh, of race politics and Mm. of any kind of equality politics especially in america where does the battle for uh, greater representation and better lives for black people sit. Because I can tell you this does not matter. This squabble does not matter to the vast majority of, as Tom says, black and white people who are in desperate situations in America and elsewhere uh, who aren't going to be paying $10, never mind $20, to go to a lame identity politics festival. I think that point about um, this really, the idea that this ticket structure would do anything, I think is really important because I don't think that's what it's designed to do. You know, Mm. the idea that if you had a coalition of festivals businesses whatever if they just all practice this wealth redistribution would sort itself out is obviously ridiculous but what it's trying to do is just constantly remind people of racial difference identitarian difference just at every single turn it's not really that interested in trying to solve the problem this kind of instinct and without getting too broad about it i think it's kind of interesting even if you think about the kind of discussion about reparations that's going on in the us at mm. the moment tarnahasi coates being the the author who's kind of really kick-started that discussion in the more recent period i mean he's a fascinating figure and i think he is interesting to look at as someone who kind of encapsulates a lot of this um thinking in a, in a usually far more articulate form than you normally see it is the fact that he's a, an avowed pessimist he almost says that america is so racist that you're never actually going to sort it out he's almost on the record as as saying this so therefore all of these kind of little schemes all of these you know tiny little things that are, you know are almost insulting and kind of how, how um, ridiculous they are like just having to pay ten dollars less for a ticket is not really about redressing anything how could they it's just purely about reminding people of racial difference constantly never letting them forget it and i think that's just um a really grim con- consequence of identity politics and just shows that it's not really interested in overcoming these differences it's yeah. interested in just constantly reaffirming them on some level Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. 
We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com.